All right. How are y'all feeling this morning? You didn't know Bob Marley wrote praise songs, did you? You know, the choruses of reggae songs are so catchy and infectious. I often listen to them and miss the verses. Have you ever read the verses of a reggae song? Whenever I hear Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley, I find myself singing to the memorable chorus, Get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. Get up, stand up, don't give up the fight. It's an inspiring chant for resistance and resilience in the ongoing fight for freedom. Similar to the words from 1 Timothy, fight the good fight, finish the race, and look forward to the crown of justice we may receive should we be so lucky. But recently, I started paying more attention to the verses of Get Up, Stand Up, and I was shocked by what I heard. It's not about fighting for freedom against the government, as maybe I had hoped. Every verse is about fighting for freedom against Christianity, or at least a particular version of Christianity. Marley sings, Preacher man, don't tell me that heaven is under the earth. I know you don't know what life is really worth. It's not all that glitters is gold. Half the story has never been told. He cries, most people think great God will come from the skies, take everything away, and make everybody feel high. But if you know what life is worth, you will look for yours on earth. Finally, he claims in the last verse, we're sick and tired of your ism, schism game, dying and going to heaven in Jesus' name. We know when we understand Almighty God is a living man. You can fool some people sometimes, but you can't fool people all the time. So now we see the light and we're going to stand up for our rights. The song is a rebuke, a rebuke of preachers who offer a distorted version of Christianity, a pie-in-the-sky spirituality that promises people an eternity in heaven when they die, but nothing while they're living here on earth. Marley was singing about a fight, a fight between two versions of the gospel, a clash of Christianities. The preacher man that Marley described sounds like the famous evangelical preacher Dwight Moody who once said, I used to go to the poor with a Bible in one hand and a loaf of bread in the other, but the poor always looked at the loaf first, so I thought that was contrary to the gospel and I stopped carrying the loaf of bread. Ten years after Moody died, a Baptist pastor in Hell's Kitchen named Walter Rauschenbusch said, whoever uncouples the religious and the social life has not understood Jesus. The kingdom of God is not a matter of getting individuals into heaven, but transforming life on earth into the harmony of heaven. There's always been a clash of Christianities, especially here in America, especially in the South. Yet when we look at the gospel carefully, we see that Jesus lands on a particular side of this conflict. He did not just preach about eternal life in heaven. He literally fed people material food and commanded his followers to do the same. 
As Desmond Tutu said, when people were hungry, Jesus didn't say, now is that political or social? He said, I feed you, because the good news to a hungry person is bread. In fact, there was a very special Greek word that is only ever used to describe how Jesus felt about the poor and hungry crowds. That word is splachnizomai. Yes, it is a four-syllable Greek word that sounds like German. You might want to try saying it, splachnizomai. Let's try that again. On, on four. Splock needs on by. One, two, three, four. See, now you all are Greek scholars, you know? Splock needs on by is that Greek word that we translate compassion. But that doesn't really have the power of the original Greek. Not just in how it sounds, but the original Greek meant to have one's guts or insides torn apart. The way to understand this word is to imagine that every time Jesus saw the poor and hungry crowds, he felt like he was experiencing a violent bowel movement, or like he'd been punched in the stomach, or had his insides tied in knots. Why did Jesus feel such profound physical and emotional pain when he saw the poor? Why was he moved so deeply? Well, it wasn't because he felt sorry for people. This was the same Jesus who said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. It wasn't simply because they were poor, though he did say, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. No, the reason Jesus felt like his insides were rumbling or being torn apart is because the people were like a sheep without a shepherd, it says. The phrase here comes from Numbers 27, where Joshua was anointed to succeed Moses as a leader of people, the people of Israel in the wilderness, so that they would be not like a sheep without a shepherd. In the Hebrew Bible, this term, sheep without a shepherd, referred to an army without a general or a nation without a king. Given the military history of this phrase and this story's proximity to the, ex the execution of John the Baptist, one might easily imagine here that Jesus was preparing to anoint himself as king and gather an army of 5,000 men in the desert to mount a violent revolution against the governing authorities. It would be easy to imagine that. Many Jewish revolutions had begun in the desert. Many Galilean revolutions began in the desert. The first century historian Josephus even claimed that one of Herod's greatest fears was that crowds would organize together under the spell of messianic preaching, which is why he arrested and executed John the Baptist. Herod sounds a lot like J. Edgar Hoover, just to give you an image. However, contrary to the fears of King Herod, Jesus did not lead a violent revolution against the empire, but he started a revolution nonetheless, a revolution of the imagination, a different kind of revolution. Jesus was not a general leading a military campaign, but a visionary intent on showing the world a different way to live together. He was less like Joshua and more like the prophets Ezekiel and Zechariah, who were also grieved when their people became like sheep without a shepherd. Ezekiel and Zechariah, though, did not use this metaphor to praise the coming of a new leader, but to critique 
the ruling class of Israel in the present day who were supposed to be shepherds caring for the needs of their flock, but instead neglected and exploited and devoured the people. These prophets condemned the leaders for defrauding and neglecting the poor in order to make themselves rich. Zechariah 11 calls them worthless shepherds who do not care for the perishing or seek the wandering or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devour the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves, it says. Ezekiel 34 proclaims, you shepherds of Israel, you've been feeding yourselves. Shouldn't you be feeding your people? Shouldn't shepherds feed the sheep? But you don't feed the sheep. You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you don't feed anyone. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured or brought back the strayed or sought after the lost. But with force and harshness, you have ruled over them. And so they have been scattered, Ezekiel says, because they have no shepherd. And they have become food for the wild animals. I'm reminded of that political cartoon. You may have seen it. It's a wolf giving a political platform speech to the sheep. And it says, I'm here to eat you. And the sheep look at each other and says, I really like this guy. He tells the truth. <laughs> in 1987, James Baldwin followed in the legacy of Ezekiel, Zechariah, Jesus, and Bob Marley by challenging the false and worthless shepherds of his day. In an article entitled, To Crush the Serpent, he wrote, I cannot take seriously as Christian ministers the present-day gang that calls itself the moral majority or its tongue-in-cheek speaking relatives. They have taken the man from Galilee hostage. He does not know them, and they do not know him. It is scarcely worth comparing the material well-being or material aspirations of these latter-day apostles with the poverty of Jesus. And then Baldwin says, whereas Jesus and his disciples were distrusted by the state largely because they respected the poor and shared everything in common, the fundamentalists of the present hour would appear not to know the poor even exist. Ezekiel cynically asked, aren't shepherds supposed to feed the sheep? And the good shepherd, Jesus, in the desert, answered definitively by feeding the sheep, by feeling the deepest internal pain over their exploitation and by responding to their physical and material needs. As usual, though, the disciples were slow on the uptake. It's hard to blame them, I guess, for being so obtuse when they'd just come home from a long journey of going about in the villages two by two preaching the kingdom of God. They returned as you read in the text and heard, hoping to go out with Jesus to a deserted place for rest, only to be confronted by the needy masses again and finding no leisure, not even enough time to eat, it says. Exhausted from their journeys, they took to a boat to try to get away again, only to encounter the crowds once more and to be overwhelmed by their infinite needs. Things were bad in Galilee at the time. And there was no rest for the weary disciples and no place for them to hide just like the crowds, they too were hungry and tired. Could not see this new vision for the world that Jesus was trying to reveal to them. 
Confronted by hunger once more, the exhausted disciples tried to solve the problem in the easiest and most efficient way, sending people into the towns to buy something to eat. It seems logical. But in their exhaustion, the disciples had succumbed to the myth of scarcity and suffered a failure of imagination. Jesus told them, you give them something to eat. But the disciples still didn't get it. They asked incredulously, are you suggesting that we should go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? Wait a second. I said, you feed them and you're still, you're missing the point. Twice they tried to solve the problem of hunger by encouraging the poor to participate in the economic system of the day. They were unable to see that there was already enough to go around or imagine an alternative to the current economic model or to see the world through Jesus' eyes. How's our vision today? How's our imagination? Can we imagine an alternative to the current way of the world, to our current economic system? Or are we suffering from a failure of imagination? Jesus had something entirely different in mind than market economics or conspicuous consumption. He was trying to get his disciples to see that poverty and hunger could not be solved by the economic system of the day. If it could, there wouldn't have been 5,000 hungry people out in the desert starving. As Albert Einstein said, the kind of thinking that got us into this mess is not going to get us out of it. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is the definition of what? Insanity, that's right. Y'all are still with me even after that Greek lesson. <laughs> so Jesus broke with the traditional thinking of the day and showed his disciples how to cast off the myth of scarcity and live into God's abundance by doing some very practical things, organizing people into groups, sharing their resources together, teaching them how to hold all things in common and to find sufficiency, self-sufficiency through the radical economic practice of sharing. In the words of Thomas Hobbes, life in first century Palestine was nasty, poor, brutish, and short. The ruling elites exacted exorbitant taxes on the common people, which led to the vast majority living so deep in debt that they never climbed themselves out of poverty. You said things are so different today. Maybe not. Think of student loan debt or the 4% chance that a poor person has of coming out of poverty in Charlotte. Many were forced in that day to work as slaves to pay off what they owed. Others simply starved. And while few of us would trade places with a first-century person, the economic situation in our world is not all that different. Today, many no longer use the word hunger, though, to describe the problem we face. They call it food insecurity. Doesn't that sound so much nicer than hunger? And yet, regardless of what we call it in America today, the richest country in the world has 42 million people living in hunger. 13 million are children. And hunger is experienced in greater proportion depending upon one's race and ethnicity. And now the pandemic has intensified hunger in America and across the globe. Earlier this month, Oxfam reported that the number of people dying of hunger around the world rose sixfold last year, up by 20 million. 
and outpace deaths from COVID. We're not going to solve this problem by telling the poor and the hungry to go to the store or wait patiently for the free hand of the market or the slow trickle down certain kinds of economics or to pull themselves up by their bootstraps when they have no boots or to go out and get a job when there are no jobs. And we're certainly not going to solve it with billionaires blasting themselves out into outer space in their own rockets. Fifty years ago, jazz musician Jill Scott Heron sang a song about folks blasting themselves off into the moon while the poor starve on Earth. He said, I can't pay my doctor bills, but Whitey's on the moon. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. Taxes are taking my whole check. Junkies are making me a nervous wreck. The price of food is going up. And as if all that wasn't enough, a rat bit my sister Nell. Her face and arm began to swell, and Whitey's on the moon. How come I ain't got no money here? Well, Whitey's on the moon. You know, I just had about, just about had my fill of Whitey on the moon. I think I'll send these doctor bills, air mail special, to Whitey on the moon. What would Jesus say about billionaires touring outer space while there are so many poor and hungry here on earth? He might say the sheep have no shepherd. He might say it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, no matter what kind of rocket you have. He might say no one can serve both God and money. Or maybe he would just pray. Pray like we all should be praying every day. Give us this day our daily bread and give everyone this day their daily bread. As we learn from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if our basic physiological needs for food, water, shelter, and rest are met, then we are in a better situation than most of the world. But when a person's basic needs are not met, they cannot focus on anything else. Survival overrides all other concerns, including self-actualization and salvation. Like Jesus, Maslow tried to teach us that freedom can only begin where all our basic needs are satisfied. And that is what Franklin Delano Roosevelt said famously in 1941 when he listed the freedom of want as one of the four freedoms everyone in the world should enjoy, a statement his formidable wife, Eleanor, used to draft the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's also why Jesus not only preached to the poor and hungry, but also taught them how to share their food as well, because he did not just come for our otherworldly salvation, but our liberation here and now. And he called us to all be agents of communal liberation when he said, you give them something. You organize them into groups on the grass. You teach them how to share. The good news of the gospel is not just words and feelings or thoughts and beliefs. It is bread and food, work and wages, housing and health care. By age 30, Andrew Carnegie was one of the wealthiest men in history when his steel company became the most profitable business in the world. Early on in his success, 
few people know, Carnegie took a ruthless evaluation of his own heart and produced a mission statement for himself. It said, the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. Continuing to be overwhelmed by my business cares and with my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time will degrade me beyond the hope of recovery. Therefore, he said in this statement, I will resign at 35. It was a powerful statement, a moment of clarity. But Carnegie didn't resign at 35, did he? Instead, he continued to amass enormous wealth for his entire life and then tried to give it away, building libraries, investing in universities, lots of philanthropy. At the time, though, Carnegie steelworkers were pushing through 12-hour shifts on floors so hot that they had to nail wooden platforms under their shoes to keep the soles from melting and burning their feet. The only housing they could afford was crowded and filthy. Most steelworkers died in their 40s from accidents or disease. And after Carnegie's death, one of his steelworkers would interviewed about the great industrialist and said, you know, libraries are nice, but we didn't really need a library. What we needed were higher wages and better working conditions. Someone ought to say that to the folks taking trips to the moon, taking trips to the space. The thinking that got us into this mess is not going to get us out of it. We need a new way of thinking, a philosophy of abundance, a practice of sharing, and a theology that puts people before profits and the poor before property. What will it take for us to discover what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples in this story? Our problem is not a lack of knowledge, but a lack of imagination and a lack of will. What we need is more passion, more fire. What we need is a case of holy splachnizomai, so every time we see the poor and the hungry, we feel like our insides are being ripped out. And maybe then we'd be compelled to think differently and imagine an alternative way of life together. It's not impossible. You know, some of our members here, I've learned, have gotten a case of holy splagnizomai. A family called me recently to say, Ben, we've got bad news. We're going to have to cut our pledge. I said, why? Was it something I said? They said, no, it's not you. We want to pay our employees more. I replied, that's not bad news at all. That's the best news I've heard all year. That's the definition of good news. That is the gospel. The risen Jesus looked at Peter on the beach and said, feed my sheep. It wasn't a question. It was our marching orders and our mission. The sheep are hungry and need their daily bread, health care, and higher wages, and it's up to us to do something about it. Excuses won't work, and neither will the economy. We can't send the hungry away or explain their poverty with trite cliches. We have to cast off the scourge of scarcity that stunts our imagination and live into God's abundance by organizing people and resources and sharing all things in common so everyone's needs can be met. We have to get up and stand up and fight against any Christianity that prioritizes the afterlife and ignores the material needs of the poor. We have to challenge worthless shepherds, wherever they are, whoever they may be, by becoming good shepherds ourselves, 
who prioritize the poor and the hungry and live lives of holy splagnizomai, holy compassion, holy imagination, holy action. We have to be people who live like there is enough to go around and more than enough even for leftovers because that is what it's going to take to become new creations. That is what it's going to take to build a beloved community. And that is what it's going to take to embody God's vision of love and liberation for our world. Amen. <laughs>